It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. I have the pleasure of introducing Christopher Meller, head of EMEA ETF Equity and Commodity Product Management at Invesco, where he's responsible for leading the team, which provides support and analysis for their range of equity ETFs. Invesco is one of the largest investment management companies in the world, with a current AUM of $1,409 billion as of December the 31st, 2022. Chris has over 20 years' experience in finance, with a background in investment analysis, economics and portfolio construction, working for a number of prominent firms such as Credit Suisse, Society Generale and State Street. Chris has both a BSc in Chemistry from the University of Bath and a Doctorate in Philosophy of Chemistry from the University of Oxford. In this interview, we discuss the future of the blockchain investment theme. Is its potential being currently underestimated? And an in-depth discussion on the Invesco blockchain ETF, taking apart the numerous sub-themes such as crypto mining, token investments, and blockchain payment systems. Enjoy. Hey, Chris. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Yes, I'm great. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No worries. And um, where are you calling from? You're in London, are you? Just outside of London, Harpenden. Are you still going into the offices or do you normally work from home? Yeah, it's, I've got to say, I'm, I'm enjoying the, the sort of uh, flexible working arrangements. So yeah. you know, uh, in the office two or three days a week at home when it suits. Yeah, uh, I'm just getting over a cold, so I've been avoiding the office. None of my colleagues <laughs> want to see me or, or, uh, or get my bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty chilly recently. It's got a bit cold again. Um, yes. I thought we could just, I could start by just, talking about your background a little bit, because I believe you got a doctorate in philosophy at Oxford. And then obviously you've, got, you've gone into finance and it'd be just interesting to see, you know, what attracted you to finance and also just generally how your career's gone. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, so I, I started out as a scientist. So I yeah. did a, a DPhil, a, a doctorate in, uh, in organic chemistry, more because I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life than anything else at that point in time. And then, you know, took the sort of analytical side from the lab into finance. I worked for, for a number of banks in research um, on the equity research side. And then uh, uh, almost eight years ago, I think I switched over from sell side research into the, the ETF business, which is obviously a growing area of financial services. The last 10 years for ETFs has been a huge boom period, isn't it? So it's a yeah, great time on that front. It's been, it's been a fun place to work, I can <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> so at Invesco, how are you You're constructing the ETFs or working on the research behind what's involved? What's your real role there at the moment? Yeah, so, so my role at Invesco, I'm, I'm responsible for product management of the, the equity ETF products. So I work closely with our product development team in terms of coming up with ideas for, for new products. Yeah. Um, but primarily what I'm, I'm doing is, is acting as the sort of in-house expert on the existing product suite, you know, Invesco has around about 140 uh, ETF products, of which almost 100 are, are equities. So, when we get questions from clients, or you know, uh, when we're going out to talk to clients, I'm generally pulled, pulled in as the, uh, the the expert on, yeah. on that, that product. And how many sort of thematic ETFs do you have in Vesco? Is it a large section, or is it growing? Quickly yeah, or? so thematics is is a reasonable sort of portion of of the business so you know i think off the top of my head we probably have about a dozen thematic etfs uh, in europe you know focused on things like you know clean energy wind hydrogen etc the thing we're talking about today you know blockchain is a good example of the sort of the tech related thematics yeah. that we're exposed to but we've had a long history there we we launched our first thematic which was a, a biotech product uh, i think you know getting on for almost 10 years ago now so uh, it's it's certainly a big part of, of what I talk about. Yeah, yeah, and of course, yeah. Today we're focusing on blockchain and um, the Invesco ETF you've got. But first, I think it'd be good to discuss just more about the, the industry in general. Uh, it's obviously been a crazy few years 
in all equities, but crypto industry as well. Uh, and that covers all blockchain, any companies involved with blockchain. But it, it feels like now, you know, we're coming out of the weeds and maybe, you know, the, 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 uh, the future's a little bit brighter now. Where do you see the crypto industry in the next five to 10 years? Are we, are we still in its nascent phases or what's the future hold? Yeah, so I think we're still in the early days. You know, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, the use of blockchain and the development of the technology, you know, it's just about 10 years, over, literally just over 10 years since, you know, the white paper on Bitcoin was written. And we've been through, you know, a pretty incredibly interesting and volatile ride um, since that point. But, you know, where do we go in the next five or 10 years? You know, I think it's a story of further strong growth. You know, the technology that sits behind cryptos, uh, uh, NFTs, DeFi and all the rest of it, you know, the blockchain technology is uh, has been proven to be robust. I think we're well beyond the proof of concept stage now. But, you know, we're still in the foothills of, of a, a journey to the, the peak of the mountains, as it were, in this space. Mm-hmm. And do you think we'll uh, ever get to a, a stage where people are paying for goods and services with some sort of cryptocurrency, whether or not it be, you know, centralized digital currency or, or um, decentralized ones? Yeah, I think, you know, it's fair to say we've already seen examples of the use of, of cryptocurrencies, uh, not always successful given the, the sort of the volatility in crypto prices, but certainly, you know, blockchain-based payment systems, I think, you know, are almost certainly a part of, of our future. You know, we're seeing central banks around the world looking at, you know, CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies, you know, the question of whether we'll be paying for things digitally, you know, and you know, we are already paying for things online using standard fiat currency. You know, it's a, a small step to start using a, a digital version of those fiat currencies and, you know, a lot of other approaches beyond that. Mm-hmm. I think one of, the, so one of the main hurdles, as always, is, is, is regulation at the moment. I think, well, in terms of paying for things with cryptocurrencies, there's tax implications currently, I believe, that make it just not, not user, it's not user-friendly to pay for things because it's basically a tax event. So once once you pay for something with a cryptocurrency, but it feels like um, Rishi is is quite uh, open to adopting blockchain in more in general, you know, both the government and and outside that, and trying to attract business to the country. There was some good developments in that recently in the UK, which I think is positive. But do you think more regulation is coming soon? Yeah, very much so. You know, and, and I think it's it's a good thing and not a bad thing. So you know, you're referring to the UK government announcement uh, earlier this month that you know. Uh, is just one example of, you know, increasingly uh, active regulation in this space. But, and there is still a question over how you regulate cryptocurrencies and how you regulate, you know, the, the related activities are, around that. But, you know, certainly, you know, we've seen, you know, last year part of the issue with FTX and the failure there was, you know, you know, a company that is set up and moves to a light touch regulation area, you know, is going to be a red flag for the future and should have been the red flag in the past, as it yeah. were. And I think you know, regulation in general is is a positive for this space. It means that you know you're setting in place adequate consumer protection. You're setting up a foundation for how things work within the law and within the regulation. And you know, it allows you to deal with questions like you know, if I pay for a cheese sandwich with a cryptocurrency, do I have to recognise a, a capital gain or or a capital loss? You know, whatever it may be. Those kind of complications actually become clearer with regulation, and, yeah. and clarity is really what's what's required here. So, regulation should should enable more mass adoption of, of these the, the technology, essentially. Yeah, in, indeed. Um, there's also this ongoing battle between fiat currencies and decentralized non-state sort of money. I don't know if you could comment on that. If what you think how the future might look for that, will governments ever relinquish control? Of this, or you know, and adopt these decentralized currencies, or, or will it always be a problem? Yeah, so you know, it's pitched as a battle. I think the reality is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of early adopters and early users and developers of cryptocurrencies, you know, the use case is very much around, you know, avoiding central government control and 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 giving, you know, an alternative system for money, if you like. The reality is that the average consumer in the street probably doesn't care too much about that. They just want, as you sort of alluded to, to be able to buy their their cheese sandwich. And, you know, <laughs> those are two very different places to be. I think the reality is there will always be a place for, you know, a Bitcoin type 
uh, exposure on probably Bitcoin is is it you know allows you to have a currency that is independent of, of central control. Uh, I think what we will increasingly see is is central governments applying the lessons that are learned from you know the the wild west of the crypto space and the developments that are happening in terms of technology. We've already mentioned CBDCs. You know those are definitely you know in the pipeline. We're seeing a lot of work in that area, and I think eventually there'll be a a sort of a coming together of the, the sort of technology and the, the central government. Will the US, you know, will the Fed or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan ever, you know, give up managing currency and controlling the flow of money in their economies? No, clearly they're they're going to want to continue to do that, and there's some very good reasons for doing so. But I think what what blockchain does, what crypto developments do, is is make that a more effective and efficient and useful process. So there is the potential for these to live in unison, basically. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, exactly. They're going to sit side by side and work in tandem and, and interact as, as they do already today. And you mentioned um, FTX. Um, well, one of the sort of themes of crypto, DeFi, uh, related to that is a collapse of Terra was a big sort of DeFi uh, failure. Do you think this will rebound in the next bull cycle? Is, is this... Uh, a technology that, that has promise? Yeah, clearly. You know, I think, you know, what we've seen in recent years are, you know, the growing pains of an early adoption of technology. You know, the market, the users of these things are, are learning as they go. These kind of developments just take time. Uh, and as we've alluded to, it's already, you know, we're, we're just over a decade into to this journey. And it's going to take time for the market to work out what does work, what doesn't work. There are going to be examples of things that are tried that fail. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, uh, algorithmic stable coins, you know, for the average person sounds like a, you know, a, a complicated quant product um, that may or may not work. But the risks are that, you know, we know that black swans occur. And if you're building an algorithm that, you know, is, you know, assuming certain set behaviors, you know that something is probably going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that blockchain technology and the use case of blockchain technology goes away. You know, the building of stable coins that are linked to a holding of fiat currency, for example, which is already being used in, in a number of examples of companies that, that are actually held in, in the, the ETF that we're running. You know, they clearly have a very good position and a strong backing and, and are much less at risk than something like a, a, a terror type of example. So, as I say, it's the the teething pains. We're still very much in the infancy of of the the yeah. uptake and development of blockchain technology. It's the the ups and downs of disruptive innovation. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not going to be a very uh, very smooth journey. There there will be lumps and bumps on the road. Yeah. But you know, I think it's 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 always the way with these sort of long term thematic ideas as well. Which is that we kind of we can see where we'll go to. It's it's up here, and we can we know we're starting down here, but we don't know quite how many valleys and peaks and troughs there will be on, on the way to, to, to get to that, that destination. Yeah. And in general, do you think the investment industry is um, underestimating the potential of blockchain from your point of view? I think there was an awful lot of hype around blockchain, you know, particularly post, you know, in the aftermath of the COVID crisis, we saw a huge activity in sort of the online world, which is obviously a, a, a strong place for you know more blockchain-related activity, we've seen you know huge sort of boom and then subsequent bust in cryptocurrencies on a number of occasions. You know the, the 2021-22 experience uh, was not the first time we've seen a you know a potential bubble in in crypto assets, and I think a lot of people you know saw the sell-off that we saw last year and and viewed that as a well, you know, we can call an end to this craziness now. The reality is that there is still a place for you know crypto and blockchain more broadly. It may be a slower burn, and actually, frankly, that would be good news rather than the boom and bust sort of short-term cycles that we've seen in in crypto markets more recently. You know, but the reality is that slower burn, that uptake of technology, and that usage of technology is still very much there, and it's still an area that you know investors can benefit from by sort of making the right decisions around getting uh, exposure to it. And the opportunity obviously exists when there's um, people underestimate the potential of something in, in, in the future. So, Yeah, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, on the, the um, 
uh, asset allocation research side says that you know the, the best time to buy is often you know when you have to hold your nose and everyone else is is saying it stinks you know so holding the course taking a sort of more longer term view is is you know it's a sort of classic of the investment industry it's yeah. we all say it's the way to invest not everyone manages to do it one thing i would say is that when we look at the behavior of the investors in our etf i would say that most investors are taking that long term view they're holding the course we saw last year so in a year where you know crypto markets collapsed and and equities linked to to blockchain underperformed we actually saw net inflows rather than outflows now that was you know uh, about you know inflows in the first quarter and then you know some offsetting outflows in in the subsequent three quarters of the year but you know very limited in terms of the selling that we we saw in reaction to to what was happening last year so i think most investors in this space are taking a long term view you sort of have to with an asset class that's so volatile. You sort of have to take this 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 long term view to go through the ups and downs of like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very dangerous to try and pick buying moments. And in terms of use cases, have you got anything in mind you think is going to sort of any use cases that might lead to mass adoption of blockchain technology in, in daily life, either for businesses or consumers? Yeah, so you know, I think there are already some some great examples where blockchain is already being used, and you perhaps don't even realise it. You know, one example is the Food Trust Network, which is uh, a system that's been set up and is being run by the IBM uh, Blockchain Consulting Group, so their their consulting division, and that's bringing together uh, an amalgamation of food producers, food retailers, and food suppliers. And using blockchain technology to track the supply chain of, of, of food deliveries. Now, you know, that may not sound like the, the sexiest and most exciting thing, but by being able to directly track the movement of, say, I don't know, a, a head of lettuce from, you know, the greenhouse it was grown in to the, the plot in the greenhouse it was grown in to the refrigerator it was kept in, the lorry it was transported in to the shop it was taken to, the warehouse it was taken to, wherever all the way through to the, the journey to the, the shelf in the shop has, you know, potentially huge benefits in terms of, you know, disease control and, you know, efficient cost control around the supply chain in, in food. And there's that's being used today by, you know, the likes of, of Walmart and Carrefour and, you know, Nestle and, and so on are all members of that, that consortium that are supporting that blockchain use case. And how... Um... How is blockchain using that? Is that is that because they're able to encrypt the the like codes into it so that you can't be tampered with and things? Is that is that what the use case is? Yeah, so it's it's ultimately about so if you think about what blockchain's doing here, ultimately it's it's acting as a shared record keeping system. So you have multiple components in that chain of, of supply, whether it's the the grower, the freight haulage company, the storage company, the, the supermarket or whoever. Um, and at each of those steps in the chain each of those interactions recording accurately what's moved from where to where all of those transfers that are occurring you know used to be done on you know multiple pages of you know carbon copy paper flimsies uh, is now done on a on a centralized it system the advantage of blockchain is that you only have one centralized it system you don't have multiple records with different companies and different uh, actors Okay. Um, and it's blockchain technology that's enabling that. So it's a lower cost and more efficient, but it's also more accurate tracking of movement is, is what you're looking for. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So let's move on to the Abesco CoinShares Global Blockchain ETF. We've obviously talked about it a little bit already, and I just thought you could go into the details of what the ETF uh, is, um, the sub-themes involved, as well as the investment philosophy behind it. Yeah, so very much the ETF is designed to give investors exposure to you know, the growth in blockchain technology in all its different forms. Uh, it's an equity product, so it's investing in companies that are most directly exposed to the, the blockchain growth story. And if you think about the the blockchain exposure, it sort of goes from across a spectrum from the thing that most people think about when they think of, of blockchain, which is crypto, um, and that you know public or open and permissionless blockchain technology 
and all the uses that, that go with that. And, you know, there are some obvious uh, examples of companies that are, are, are sort of directly growing their earnings today from business activities related to that. So whether that's, you know, cryptocurrency miners, the suppliers to those miners, whether it's, you know, uh, specialist chip manufacturers or, or the energy providers for crypto mining activity in, in Bitcoin, for example, right through to the other end of the, the spectrum, which are, if you like, private or, or closed blockchain technology users. And, you know, while most people think, think of crypto when they think of blockchain, there's also a very strong enterprise use case, as it were. So, you know, for example, in things like supply chain management, in things like payment systems and, you know, the, the back office plumbing of the financial services world, yeah. you know, blockchain is you know, clearly uniquely suited to that. And there's a wide range of companies out there that are also, you know, seeing today real measurable genuine earnings coming from those kind of activities as as well and the key role of the etf is to give a, a broad exposure to all of those areas weighted by you know the significance of of their their blockchain activity exposure and it seems to be quite a broad geographic makeup of the etf including a heavy focus on on japan which is quite an interesting you sort of cherry picked uh, the best companies from across the globe. Yeah, so the approach we've taken is, you know, it's it's a bottom up approach. So we've partnered with with a company called CoinShares, you know, who I think most people in the the crypto space will recognise the name. You know, they're one of the one of Europe's largest, um, you know, crypto asset management firms. And analysts within their the team at, at CoinShares are are you know focused on, you know assessing companies, identifying companies, assessing their exposure to blockchain uh, activities uh, across a range of, of different measures and assigning a blockchain category score to those companies. Now, you've identified that there's a, you know, a bias towards you know, uh, Japanese uh, and, and Korean companies or certainly a larger weight than you would find in a sort of standard broad global benchmark. And the reason for that is that that's an area where uh, an area of the world where regulation and and um, uh, insight um, is very much more focused, perhaps on on blockchain technology. So it's not by design; it's by bottom up analysis that those are where you find the companies with the um, sort of greatest opportunity set in the blockchain space. That's very interesting. Um, so I thought we could dig into a few of the sub themes in a bit more detail, including some of the the holdings in ETF. So I thought we could start the blockchain payment systems, you said, like enterprise solution, but also relevant to consumers. So Block being one of the ones that comes to mind. Are there other companies that um, you can discuss as well as Block and what they're actually doing? Yeah, so um, Block is a great example. You know, so most people would recognize it uh, perhaps by its previous name, which was Square. Um, I think the renaming probably reflects the sort of direction of travel for the company. But you know, so so Block is a it's a financial services and mobile payments company focused primarily on on point of sale solutions for retailers. So you know, if you if you think back uh, only a few years, if you went to the local market to to buy something, you had to pay cash. You know, today you you know you can tap your card on a little device that's linked to you know the, the mobile phone of of the you know the, the person you're transacting with, and you know. Block was a was a pioneer in that space. Um, why are they in this index? Well, because they also support the use of of Bitcoin in trading and payments um, on their mobile app in in the US and the UK. And actually, when you look at the numbers on on Block, you know Q three, which is the last quarter we have data for, they had revenue of something like one point eight billion dollars related to Bitcoin activities, which is around about forty percent of total group revenue. So this is this is a big chunk of you know the the growth story of, of a company like block other payment systems examples um recently actually at the the latest rebalance which occurred at the uh, end of january start of february uh, we saw paypal come into the index um because they're taking steps to integrate sort of more blockchain related activities into to their business as well so there are a number of, of great examples and payment systems is a good example of where, you know, the use of blockchain can certainly enhance the returns for, you know, for the companies involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see the early adopters of this, such as block. As soon as we get over some of these regulatory hurdles related to tax, uh, you know, it's going to unlock 
that completely. And suddenly, you know, when you know your friend is using, you know, Bitcoin to pay for something down the road, it, it spreads very quickly when it's easy to use in, in, in an app such as, as Block. But yeah, there is the, just, the, I think it's the regulatory stuff that needs to we get over first uh, related to payments in, in, in crypto. And then so moving on to mining, and I thought we could start with um, operational mining side. Now, mining is obviously primarily used for Bitcoin now because Ethereum's moved from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, so no longer has mining operations related to it. And so largely a lot of these, a lot of these companies are related to Bitcoin and, and they basically maintain the system, verifying the transactions to make sure you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem keeps on running. And they get rewarded for that in Bitcoin. And I think um, mining, I looked just a second ago, mining revenue is up to $21 million a day at the moment. So it's a pretty good sort of global revenue from Bitcoin mining. And it's related to the success of Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin as well. What do you see the future holds for the mining operations? Yeah, so again, crypto mining is, a, is an obvious activity that's you know, sort of directly linked to you know, performance and activity in, in, in Bitcoin, as you, you've been talking about. You know, it's a it's a more nuanced question, I guess. So total revenue is is obviously very much linked to the, the number of Bitcoin that are mined and you know the uh, the price of Bitcoin at the point at which you know that that mining company sells it. You know, the last twelve months have been a pretty difficult time for for crypto miners, um, and the reason for that is obviously you know the the value of Bitcoin until the start of this year has been falling, you know, pretty significantly. Um, so from a you know, value perspective, they, they've been hurt. The other thing that's been happening is that the hash rate has been going up. So the hash rate is referring to uh, effectively how many miners are trying to solve the problem, uh, the cryptographic problem, which is required to you know, add uh, new transactions to the blockchain. And the higher the hash rate, it's telling you the more there are more miners or there are more mining machines being applied to, to try to do that. And Bitcoin has a you know, effectively an adjustment mechanism, which is the more miners there are or the more machines, the more power is being put into to solving those problems, uh, the harder the problem gets in order to make sure that you're still producing, effectively producing the same number of Bitcoin. That's a pretty uncomfortable place for a lot of miners, you know, uh, as they're effectively having to share their revenues across a wider base. And, you know, that, that goes against a, a cost base that's also potentially rising with rising energy costs. So it isn't a straightforward story of all miners benefit equally from uh, you know the increased uh, revenues. However, there are some miners that are better positioned to to deal with that world that have, for example, lower cost bases or you know more efficient and effective machines. And what the CoinShares analysts are doing is identifying you know which of the mining companies are best placed to. Um, you know, survive in you know a competitive marketplace. Yeah, and one an example of that is Hive. I think is yeah. So there are a few crypto miners that make it through. So Hive is one. Oh, actually, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, so Hive is one good example of that. You know, that's a North American based miner with you know a secure supply of energy. And ultimately, if you think about mining, you know, what are your input costs? Your input costs are you know the price of the the hardware that you're using and the price of the energy that you're you're using. Yeah. Very much, yeah. if you're looking at miners, you know, companies that have a secure supply from preferably from sort of isolated energy assets. And this is one of the things that makes Bitcoin mining interesting. You know, it can actually use, for example, uh, you know, hydroelectric dam, you know, uh, miles from, from anywhere uh, that's been built for aluminium smelting. If the price of aluminium falls and smelting is no longer viable, you know, uh, monetizing that asset. Um, using crypto mining is is a is a good example of a, a low cost energy source. So in terms of the uh, the ETF, we have exposure not only to the crypto miners themselves, but also you know to certain companies that have you know could potentially benefit from monetizing those those um, isolated energy assets. Yeah, and you can see the ones that do survive the downturn and, and thrive in the in the next bull cycle as long as Bitcoin's adopted, etc. You know, huge benefits as long as they can maintain. The energy costs at good levels. And um, just something that popped into my mind, and people, I, I, bet, I don't know if I'm too far out on it, but I think it's by 2100 or something, the last Bitcoin is mined. I believe that's the right, something like that, sometime in the future. And, and at that point, I actually, I just don't know myself. Do you, do you know what happens to the miners at that point? Do they, I mean, obviously, they've still got to maintain the system, but there's no new Bitcoin to be mined. 
Yeah. So, so I guess the key thing here is that you know miners don't have to maintain the system; they only do it because they're being rewarded for doing it. You know, this isn't a centralized system, and uh, you know miners earn revenue from two potential sources. One is from the creation of new currency, new native currency, Bitcoin in this case, that is used to reward them for doing the work that's required to add new transactions. Um, The other source of revenue for those miners is transaction fees that they can charge to users of Bitcoin that want to have their transaction added to the block. And, you know, obviously there's a sliding scale on fees. The higher the fee you're willing to pay, the higher up the list of transactions you're transaction goes, the sooner it will be added to, to the blockchain. In the future case, in the future world where you know there are no new Bitcoins being issued to, to reward miners for that work, it's a, a payment for transaction basis that, that that will be existing on. I was going to say, I don't think anyone actually knows quite how that will shake out. You know, Yeah, yeah, no, of course. That's the theory of where we end up. But you're right. You know, um, uh, one of the questions over over Bitcoin is, you know, what happens when you stop issuing new Bitcoin? One of the advantages of Bitcoin, one of the things that people love about it is that it, you know, uh, has that sort of inflation-proof nature of uh, a known amount of issuance, sort of similar yeah. to, to gold in the digital space. It's both a pro and a con because, you know, you need to work out how that system will work in the future. But revenue uh, transaction-based uh, payments is is the likely outcome. And obviously, those miners, by that time, a huge proportion of them probably have built up huge assets. They don't have to sell all their Bitcoin, right? So if that keeps on going up, it compounds that they're both getting rewarded at that point in time, a certain amount. And as long as it goes up over time, that amount's going up exponentially, I suppose, as they keep on getting more more Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. If they have a vested interest in the system, then that's another reason why they may still continue to mine. Um, although I would say that in the last 12 months to sell off that we've seen in the crypto markets, has seen an increase in selling of crypto by the miners. So being paid in Bitcoin and not selling it is kind of fine when the price is going up. When the price is going down, you start to have to monetize that. And, and again, that's potentially been another sort of, you know, sort of a, a multiplying effect on on the, the weakness in, in Bitcoin prices. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we'd have to cover this one because it's quite pretty self-explanatory, but mining hardware is obviously the mining computers, you know, the, the miners buy to, to perform the operations. And obviously business hasn't been as good recently because, you know, mining's been become more difficult. But do you see these recovering essentially, uh, you know, with price recovery in, in, in Bitcoin? Yeah. And again, I think, you know, the, the key thing is there is there is a cyclical nature to demand for, for mining hardware, you know, when the price of Bitcoin's going up and, you know, uh, it becomes more attractive to mine it, then, you know, miners will be looking to replace aging hardware to improve the speed of, of processing and, in, you know, improve their, you know, success rate. And there are a number of companies out there that, that benefit when you're in that upswing. Yeah, a good example is TSMC is one of the larger holdings in in the, the, the ETF. You know, it's there because, you know, TSMC, I think everyone probably recognizes the name. It's one of the largest independent chip foundries in the world, or in fact, it's the largest independent chip foundry in the world. Um, it's also the largest supplier of specialist chips for um, crypto asset mining. And it's an interesting market for them. You know, uh, effectively, what they're doing is they, they get, you know, a significant benefit when demand for those type of chips goes up. They're manufacturing them on, on demand with prepayment. So it's a, a sort of a lucrative business for them. It's boosting the profitability of TSMC during those upswings in the cycle. And when there's a downswing in the cycle, you know, it's not like TSMC has some kind of huge amount of cost into to manufacturing those ships. It's in a very sort of good position in that marketplace. Is it the biggest part of TSMC's business? You know, almost certainly not. You know, probably 7 to 10% of TSMC's revenue uh, in a quarter was attributable to sort of sale of mining chips. Uh, at the peak of of the activity levels, you know, and and as we sort of discussed, it can go to to zero. But yeah. you know, TSMC is a great example of the sort of stock that actually does give you sort of exposure to the upside potential. They're generating real earnings today, but you know, they also have a stable, strong business yeah. that you know will continue. And you know, Bitcoin and blockchain is really just a, a an, an add on to you know what's an existing strong business model. Yeah. And moving on to energy, so this is providing energy to the mining companies to perform their operations. Is that what we're talking about there? Yeah, so this is, uh, as I was saying, you know, often for a Bitcoin miner, 
you know, the largest cost will be the cost of, of the energy going into running the computers. And of course, you know, that's a sort of source of contention. What that means, though, is that Bitcoin miners are often looking for the lowest cost source of energy in order to, to run their activities. And Bitcoin mining itself is, if you like, a uniquely transportable use of, of energy. So it doesn't make sense for them to plug into the local grid next to you know a large city where there's a lot of demand for electricity from industrial sources and so on and, and consumers. It makes a, a lot of sense for them to find energy assets that are underutilized that they can use as a as a low cost source of energy. And at the same time, it means that the owner of that energy asset is also monetizing something that perhaps maybe you know is a hangover from a previous investment cycle. I used the example earlier of hydroelectric dams built, you know, where the where the water is and where the conditions are. Uh, so often miles, hundreds or thousands of miles yeah. from civilization and and obvious sources of, of demand for electricity. You know, they were built for smelting aluminium and aluminium is itself a sort of uniquely transportable energy use as moving the bauxite to a dam to smelt it and, and then move the finished aluminium, you know, made sense or makes sense monetarily. But if you're not smelting aluminium, you know, effectively smelting uh, Bitcoin is, is another use for, for that. So there are a number of names in, in the index that often raise a, an eyebrow from investors, you know, the likes of the Rio Tintos of the world that you think, what on earth is a, a physical mining company doing in a, in a blockchain index? But it's because you know, blockchain is again another way of, of monetizing their existing business and their existing assets. Yeah. So some of these miners, I hadn't realized this is pretty interesting. So they're, they're setting up shop right outside these hydroelectric dams, et cetera. And is that because it's, you lose a lot of, it's inefficient to, to transfer that energy to a city? So is, is it better to use it as a source? Yeah. So if you have a hydroelectric dam in, I don't know, the middle of Canada, miles from you know, in, uh, civilization, a mile from a city, you know, the energy loss in moving that, that electricity produced by the hydroelectric dam to uh, a big city is too great to be worth the investment in building, you know, the infrastructure to transport it. And actually, you know, a crypto miner, you know, literally you can put your device, you know, the, the mining machines into a, a container and ship the container to where it needs to be. The only other infrastructure you need is a, you know, a link to the internet. Yeah, and you're up and running. So it's it's that that is you know, um, you know the, the the benefit from, yeah. from crypto mining. From, from and obviously, the, the clean energy source is it supports the sort of narrative at the moment because you know it had some bad press. Bitcoin or the press picked it up for for using too much energy. Yeah, and and again, you know, I think it's fair to say that you know crypto miners are, are sort of source agnostic. They just care about the cost. So there are some examples where, you know, in particular in China, you had, um, you know, coal. the use of coal as your source, you know, stranded coal assets. I, th- I guess that has decreased to an extent, but it is still part of, of yeah. the, you know, the, the question. Um, again, the ETF itself is is exposed to companies that are generally generating assets from generating, uh, using energy generated from, you know, cleaner sources of energy than, than Kazakhstan coal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And moving on to token investments, can you touch on what those are? Are these companies such as MicroStrategy who are invested in a token or are you talking more about blockchain firms that have their own token? Yeah, so the token investment category that, that is used is specifically talking about companies that are, are being held in the ETF for their exposure to crypto assets. Yeah. Uh, it's, an in, it's an interesting, it's sort of a, a very small part of the index. So in fact, there's only one company that is currently being held for its exposure in, in the token investment category. And that's, uh, as, as you've identified, MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy is, itself is a, a software as a service company but its management team took the decision to invest a reasonable portion of their treasury assets into bitcoin uh, a number of years ago and so uh, what microstrategy has effectively become today is a listed entity that gives exposure to the performance of the bitcoin price as i say it's an unusual thing in the the index and the etf as the only example in that space it's also worth emphasizing the etf is only investing in companies so it won't be investing in you know other funds that are holding crypto assets. It won't be investing in 
or it doesn't invest in crypto assets directly. Yeah. Um, it's purely investing yeah. in companies, and, and MicroStrategy is an interesting example there, but a, a, an oddity rather than the norm, as it were. Yeah. No, MicroStrategy is a very interesting one. A lot of people that I talked and discuss this with it almost position it as a binary bet on Bitcoin, basically. I, either it succeeds, you know, and people it's adopted, which means with the amount of Bitcoin they've got today, I mean, it could be one of the most valuable companies in the world, theoretically, down the line. Or it's not, and, you know, then therefore this asset sheet is, is worth nothing. But um, that's a pretty good... Binary bet to me, if you if you see what I mean, the downs the downside is a lot lower than the potential upside. So the the risk reward on it, uh, if you know, if if taken in, in the right way, is is, is pretty interesting. Um, let's move on to blockchain financial services. Does this cover exchanges and such, such as Coinbase, CoinCheck, I think, which is a, an exchange on part of Monex, which is a Japanese crypto bank. They have other things there, but is that is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, so so the financial services side, are companies that are uh, either involved in, as you've said, exchange-related activities, or it's companies that are involved in facilitating, you know, the activities of of more crypto-related businesses. So you know, companies like Silvergate that's had a pretty tough time on the on the back of the FTX failure, um, but companies in that sort of space. So you've mentioned two examples there. You know, Coinbase is a great example. You know, it's a company that acts effectively as a prime broker within the, the crypto space. So it, it's facilitating lending, trading, credit, intermediation of, of trading activities in the cryptocurrency space. Another good example uh, is, as, as you mentioned, CoinCheck. So CoinCheck itself is uh, actually owned by a Japanese brokerage and crypto exchange business called Monix. And again, the story behind this is is quite interesting. So Monex have acquired CoinCheck in, I think it was 2018, basically bailing CoinCheck out after um, they'd had a big hack. And again, I was going to say in the early days of the cryptocurrency story, 2018 is only, uh, you know, uh, five years ago now. But, um, you know, it's still very early in the crypto story. And one of the key features here, and we talked about regulation previously, one of the key features here is that you know, the Japanese financial regulator required a regulatory entity to acquire CoinCheck, CoinCheck being one of the you know, largest crypto exchanges in, in Japan. Yeah. So Monix, as a, as a regulated entity already, you know, was in a position to acquire that attractive asset and you know, has uh, done very well out of that acquisition. Uh, and it's a good example of how regulation is key to the success of some of these businesses. Yeah, and a good relationship and a good understanding of regulation is is key. And Monex is, I believe, one of the largest holdings on on the ETF. It's not just CoinCheck, the, the crypto exchange that they have. Is it they they've got a big research and consulting arm as well? Is that right? And are they are they consulting other businesses? Is that so? So yeah. So a lot of this is a good example of a lot of the firms in that are being held by the ETF. You know. They may be held by the ETF for, because there's an obvious business activity. Uh, they're also obviously linked activities outside of that. So, you know, in many cases, there are, are multiple reasons why those companies are, are in the index. You know, the approach that's taken to identifying companies is very much around, you know, assessing, you know, what is the blockchain business they're involved in today? What development stages it at? You know, how competitive is it? You know, what is the future earnings potential? What is the current earnings? You know, how significant is that for, for the um, for the business itself? And overall, what the analysts are doing is is looking at, at, at that in in aggregate and assigning a blockchain category score from five being you know the maximum to, to zero being not involved, but one being the lowest for, that would get you included in the index. And by making that broad uh, assessment of the company. It enables you to identify companies that have a, a greater potential or greater exposure. And the reality is that you know today in the blockchain space, in the listed company space exposed to blockchain, you know you can't build an, an index, you can't build an ETF with you know fifty companies that are pure plays on on blockchain activity. Yeah. So you know there is a balance to be had there. So you know uh, companies like TSMC have a score that's sort of in, in the middle, uh, moderate exposure. Companies like Hive have a very high score. 
we also include, you know, a company like IBM, for example, which we, we've sort of not really talked about, but did mention, you know, their, um, their consulting arm that has a score of one, you know, clearly they were market leader in consulting on the enterprise blockchain side, but is their blockchain consulting business going to be the biggest driver of their earnings? Probably not, not today anyway. Yeah. So it's that balance of finding investable liquid and meaningful exposure. So just um, building on this and on the how your companies are selected and waiting to find. So that initial phase of how you select companies, is that like is the same sort of procedure? So you've got this ranking system. They've got a big pool, this universe that they're looking at, and they're only selecting the ones that have the highest ratings. And then the weightings are defined more based on some assessment criteria. And I've written down here because I've, I've, I've had a look, but based on earnings, significance, uh, earnings potential, like you've just mentioned. Uh, the blockchain development stage, blockchain business competitive positioning, and blockchain business sustainability. Yeah, so the analysts are, uh, are looking at each country against five criteria and scoring on each of those five criteria. And then ultimately, you come up with an aggregate score that is the average of those five pillar scores. You know, the specifics of what they'd be analysing, what they'll be looking at for uh, an individual business will obviously depend on the business activity that they're involved in. It also depends on things like availability of data and and so on. So, um, so there's no sort of standard rule of must have X percent earnings, revenue, whatever. But all of those criteria are part of of the assessment. And again, this is a good example of a thematic area and a problem for for thematic products, if you like, or a problem to solve for thematic products is you know, very often you want to be involved in a, a thematic area early in its uh, in its growth. And early in its growth, it's often hard to find, you know, uh, the best quality data and the, you know, segment breakdowns and so on. So a lot of the, the, the work that the CoinShares analysts are doing is talking to companies, meeting with management, visiting, uh, their factories or, or, you know, business locations, talking to their suppliers, talking to their customers, going to conferences and, you know, keeping in touch with what's happening in the blockchain technology space, you know, and really forming a a good picture of what's happening in the blockchain universe to allow them to, you know, sort of make these assessments. And in terms of rebalancing and how and why consistents are added or removed from the index, how is that determined? Are things like, I mean, we touched on Coinbase earlier very quickly. I mean, with the collapse of FTX was obviously a big negative for the industry short term. Hopefully, you know, a regular, you know, it might be fast tracks and regulation actually builds and gets a net positive in the future. But a big positive for Coinbase is it's lost one of its main direct competitors in the market for the US. So, you know, that that's pretty positive. Is, that, is this the sort of thing that they'll take into account or? Yeah. So I guess, you know, in assessing Coinbase and whether it gets included or not, you know, part of that equation was, you know, what is the competitive space and, you know, how do they sit? Uh, and obviously, the failure of, of other businesses will affect that uh, assessment. But ultimately, I guess it's a longer term assessment that's being made. It's not just about the very short term. So while, you know, those short term changes in, in the market, you know, will be fed into the assessment, it's you know, ultimately you're focused on what is the longer term uh, outcome, yeah. because that's what investors in, in the ETF will be caring about. And just to wrap it up, I thought we could just Talk about what blockchain is obviously, you know, we talked, said, discussed earlier, everyone knows it's a highly volatile theme and ETF is a good way to get exposure to the theme because it's at least diversified within the theme, but it still can be volatile. How should investors approach to incorporate an ETF like this into their portfolio? Yeah, so I think, you know, the key thing is it, it, with any sort of long-term thematic investment, you know, whether it's blockchain or biotech or, you know, fintech or, or clean energy or whatever, um, they all have some similar characteristics, which is, as you've identified, you know, um, they can be more volatile. They tend to be more concentrated portfolios and therefore can, you know, both underperform and outperform the, the market. You know, I guess for me, the key thing for an investor is needs to be focused on is, you know, uh, what is the long term growth story? Do I believe in the long term growth story? And if the answer to that is yes, you know. You've got to be in a position that you can accept the volatility that comes, some of those peaks and troughs on the journey from here to that, you know, that long-term, you know, growth outcome. I think most investors that I talk to 
uh, incorporate this kind of ETF into their portfolio as a uh, using a sort of core satellite type of approach. So they'll have a core holding of I don't know, you know, broad global equities, um, and then sitting around that, they'll be investing you know a proportion of their portfolio into you know perhaps a, a selection of you know thematic uh, approaches. You know, so some exposure to blockchain, some exposure to clean energy, some exposure to biotech or whatever, and in that way, you know, they know they've got a more volatile asset, but they're not fully, you know, investing the, the whole portfolio in it. And again, I guess the the key thing is, you know, what is your investment horizon, and and what are the risks that you can bear? You know, if you've got to pay your kids' university tuition fees next year, you know, then putting that money, all of that money, into <laughs> a thematic ETF, uh, equity ETF, is is not the right place to be. If you're saving for your pension that's going to come through in 20 years, then, you know, that's uh, perhaps a more yeah. appropriate place to, to put it. These themes often take many years to play out, don't they? You've got to give them time yeah. to get over those hurdles. And like you said, it would be very, suddenly they'll have a year where they do exceptionally well and, then, you know, you'll have sort of underperforming for, for the next six months and stuff like that. Yeah, this is a perfect example of that. So in uh, we had one one year in 2020, the blockchain ETF returned more than 90%. Um, last year, it, it dropped just over 50%. So you know, this is a volatile investment in you know, a, a volatile and exciting space in the market. But you know, since inception, you still had you know, positive returns and, and better returns than you, you could have got from you know, a, a sort of broader global benchmark. But boy, has it been a, a, a busy ride on the way. Yeah, a roller coaster. Well, Chris, thanks so much uh, for the discussion. It's, it's, been, it's been really, really interesting to dig into uh, the details of, of the ETF and understand, uh, you know, more about how they, all these sub themes and how they're playing out, how important they are to the whole blockchain industry, and you know, specifically the makeup of the ETF. Uh, we'll include a link to the ETF in the show notes for anyone who's, who's interested. So we'll, we'll do that. So please check it out. Is there anything else you'd like to? leave with Chris? No, just to say thank you for, for inviting me to, to join you here. It's been a, a, an interesting chat. And uh, yeah, if anyone has any questions, they can obviously reach out to you or reach out to Invesco and uh, we'll be happy to help. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Go fruition.